everybody, and welcome to episode 57. That was always the race number I wanted when I was growing up racing motocross. Any particular reason why? No, nah, man, it just looks really good. It does look good. Yeah, it does. Yeah, 57 of the Mountain Bike Podcast, presented by Worldwide Cyclery. Mm-hmm. Uh, the spot where you can go and get not only parts for your bikes, all the parts, they have lots of parts, mm-hmm. but also knowledge. Those dudes shred. Yep. And they know what they're doing. They really do. Uh, you can see where they went up to Whistler recently and they did, uh, they did kind of like a behind the scenes. They had a board meeting, mm-hmm. <laughs> like an executive meeting. So they all went to Whistler and that's, I guess what you do when you have a bike company, huh? They are. So pretty awesome. They're riders just like us. Anyways, if you need stuff, head over to mtbpodcast.com and go to the store section. And then if you click on that worldwide cyclery banner, we get a little chunk of that. We should do a board meeting in Whistler too. Uh, yeah. Well, speaking of that, should we leak? I think we should. Okay, yeah. Uh, Steven and I are taking a trip to Whistler uh, with a guiding service in that region, and we're going to relay that experience uh, to you guys. I know you guys are thinking, oh, tough work. Uh, yeah, really tough work. Glad we're the ones that have to do it. Yeah. Um, but we're going to relay the experience. We're going to ride with locals in Squamish and that region around there. We're going to really kind of deliver you the goods on Whistler with the Mecca of mountain biking. So stay tuned for times and everything else on that. We'll let you guys know. But it's going to be so difficult. Pray for us. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But uh, I really do think that we're going to be able to deliver a cool experience expect another episode just like what we did kind of with Bentonville uh, so we'll do one like that and an interview at least one interview probably multiple interviews uh, from that whole time so there's going to be lots of podcast content coming from that which I really want to be a part of yeah I'm excited about this fight. it's going to be fun. I was kind of jealous of your Bentonville experience I know yeah we tried to make it two up um, mm-hmm. so we should cover we have a special guest with us here today we do yes uh, Clint Clausen 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 yes I got it the you double A makes yeah. it soft A um, so Clint Clausen you are I guess introduce yourself uh, for the folks listening right now yeah um, I've been pro mountain bike racer since 2010 um and uh, right now, my wife and I run a company called Clipton Races, and we promote um, put on all sorts of events uh, from trail running races to um, mountain bike races, cyclocross races in the uh, Northern California and Sacramento region. Yeah, a bunch of them. Uh, and I'm glad you're here because <clears throat> I feel like there's a big misunderstanding or like a disconnect between the racer and the organizer or promoter. Right. Um, and, and I think a lot of us don't really know perhaps the difference between organizers and promoters in your case, you do both. Um, but it's a kind of, I think that we can have a really cool discussion on finding out what it actually takes to organize a race. Uh, because number one, that should hopefully make us understand it a little bit more, maybe appreciate it more. Absolutely. And then on top of that too, it might make you in your locale say, you know what, I feel like this is something that we need. And now I see what one person is doing successfully. Maybe we could do it in, you know, insert place in middle America, wherever it may be, or Italy or wherever else you're listening from. So or Sweden, cause we're huge in Sweden. <laughs> we are huge in Sweden. This is true. So, uh, so yeah, anyways, I would, um, yeah, I'm glad you're here, man. Thank, Thank you for having us. Yeah. You, you're a fast racer. Uh, when I first started out riding mountain bikes, I remember like, uh, I'd ride these, like these trails and stuff. And I'd look at times on Strava all the time. Mm-hmm. And you just like disappointed me all the time. <laughs> he was always, the times were like super high. So yeah, Clint rips too. Uh, with that, Steven, uh, is there anything else that we should mention before we get down into the news? No, cause we're going to mention it all in the business section. True story. So let's do it. Let's do news. News team assemble. All right. News time. Uh, first thing racing happened we had somebody on our Instagram, uh, say that they didn't want us to, uh, 
to drone on in the racing stuff. Uh, so we'll keep it short. Yes. Uh, we'll test that out. Let us know how this, this works. But anyways, EW, EWS Latouille happened. I believe that's how you would say it. Latouille. I don't know. It's, we can Italian. just say Italy. Yes. Italy. Yeah. Uh, and here's the interesting thing. This course looks pretty darn raw. It kind of looks like they have manzanita bush, which for those that don't know, like if you've ever been to the Sierra Nevada, it's the bush that makes the mountains green. Uh, and it's like, it's a really like tough wiry scrub. You don't want to crash into manzanita. Manzanita is never fun to crash into. And it looks like this place has almost like manzanita just sprawling everywhere and they run a mower. They literally run a mower over this stuff to kind of like make a path hmm. for some of these stages. Kind nice. of crazy, right? Yeah. Uh, but anyway, the, the, it's so steep. And some interesting things on Pinkbike, you can find an article where riders were talking about the things they're doing to set up their bikes for steeper terrain. Yeah. Uh, Richie Rude ran one more spacer underneath his stem. Interesting okay. point. Because basically he's thinking that his angle is going to be more exaggerated. Thusly, he's going to reduce that a bit by putting his bars a little higher. Yeah. That, of course, has other impacts, though, on your handling, right? Of course. So it's kind of a tricky balance. Especially for your transitions and, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A uh, number of people were running slightly different, like, uh, bottom bracket heights by changing a flip chip or a spacer in their rear linkage, which was an interesting point. Yeah. What they were looking to do in most cases here was to lower the bottom bracket of the bike. So then they could have a bike that was more stable with a back end that perhaps is a little bit more planted planted, rather than sitting higher. Mm -hmm. And then people were running. It was way more common to see tires that were like DHR twos that were basically like sand paddles that just stop you rather than running something that's like faster rolling. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So interesting stuff. Uh, Some people are even rolling their bars fore and aft, like uh, basically because it was going down so much. Some people were rolling their bars back. Because they're always that far back behind them that in order to reach your brake levers. Yeah. Yeah, Which I find to be like a not ideal thing. If I'm in that situation, I'm going to put my levers up and then I'm going to change my stack height, but I'm not going to rotate my bars because that has different, that changes also the angle at which your wrists are at, right? I wouldn't be into that. You're still steering through the same column there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not into the rotating, like your bars should be in a very specific position that is either suggested or you've dialed in, you know, not accidentally. So in fact, we were riding with a group up at North Star recently and I saw a guy and he was riding, he has the raddest name. Oh gosh, I think this was him. Anyways, a guy in the group, his name's Cole Trickle. Yeah. Which, yeah. Good old Cole. <laughs> so I'm sure you guys know him. So shouts to Cole. They For call him NASCAR Nas- days. They yes. call him NASCAR. And yeah. as soon as we got, there's a trail at North Star that I'm sure that we'll see once EWS gets there. Uh, it's called Daytona Berms at the bottom. And as we dropped into that, I was just yelling his name nonstop because it's basically his turf. He's NASCAR. So yeah. uh, gigantic berms. But anyways, he was running his bars super far forward. Um, and, uh, kind of an interesting thing. I, I, you see that in the moto side of things, like some guys run their bars really far forward, but he actually wasn't, you know, did end up putting them back. Anyway, some interesting stuff, the, how they set them up differently. Uh, Richie Rude didn't finish. Um, I think he just had a mechanical that blew up his wheel and then as a result didn't finish. And once again, man, that guy's year has been struggling. It has been, man. You know, I, and I kind of, I look at this and Clint, maybe you can talk to this, like, cause you raced pro for how long? Um, I guess I still kind of am. Yeah, still, yeah, because <laughs> he, he still do. He just yeah, throws yeah. himself into races here yeah. and there. Yeah, you know? yeah. yeah. Uh, how long has it been then like, since uh, you since started racing pro? Yeah. yeah. So quite some time. Uh, when you're racing pro like this and you're racing at the pointy end where it's like it's – Which it's, I'm not right now. Right. <laughs> like it's hard, right? Like when you're racing pro racing, it's extremely hard. And I find that the psychological game at that point is extremely important. And it's kind of like I see um, if I'm watching like Richie Rude's Instagram, I see how disappointed he gets 
and down he gets when there's rain every single time. And I get it because I would suck terribly. So I'm not saying that, you know, Richie Rude sucks in the rain or something, but comparably speaking, I believe that he perhaps even perhaps just because he tells himself that he does, that he doesn't have as good of results. Cause then it seems like anytime it rains, he drops down. He has had one good result this year in the rain, I guess. Right, and, and in the rain, he's probably getting nervous and everything and getting tense when he needs to be the most relaxed. That's like the worst thing you yeah. can do in the mud, right? Exactly. Like, yeah, yeah. you want to loosen up. So it's a bummer to see because the, he's such a good rider. And from what I've, I've never met Richie, but uh, seems like a really nice dude. And, you know, being American, I like to see these American riders doing really well, but um, you know, I just like, you know, an Italian loves seeing an Italian yeah. do well or New yeah. Zealander loves the fact that Sam Hill is just absolutely completely dominating that sport. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Where are we going to Did say? you see, uh, did you see that Cannondale soft announced the Jekyll 29? I did with so, EWS. Yeah. So well, under a female racer first or well, male too? No, they did it under, well, Jerome Clements posted a picture of the bike on Friday morning yeah. as it was set up and ready for the race. Yeah. Strategically, the Michelin tires were rotated to the point where little shoots of grass were covering the size of the tire. <laughs> but you could definitely look at it and you could see a huge difference between oh, my yeah. Jekyll where the, the Eagle derailleur hangs to the edge of the rim and you yeah. could just see a sizable difference. And you could totally just tell that it was a completely different bike, but he just labeled it as the 2019 colorway. Yeah. And sure enough, Monday morning, it was announced that that was the 29 Jekyll. It looks really, the the frame, like with most good 29er bikes, you know, the frame looks like it's nestled in between the wheels rather yes. than sitting on top. And you could see that in that bike too. Even, you know, with a trained eye, you can look at it and just say, okay, yeah, that is a, at least a 29 Geo bike, you know? Yep. Um, yeah, it's a, and it was a pretty looking color. Yeah. It's a, it's a, a dark metallic green and then a mm -hmm. very light, almost a, it's a very misty green silver on the top. Um, yeah. that's probably the bike that I'm going to be ending up with, but mine's getting custom painted. We're yeah. going to do, we're going to go all out on mine this year. Oh, so yes. yeah, yeah. we're going to go wild with it. For those that don't know, Steven has a past in the automotive industry where they really go wild and crazy with these colors and projects. So yeah, yeah. Um, so. so it'll look good. Yeah. Uh, some things really quick on Sam Hill. Uh, I see him, he doesn't actually seem, if you watch him in terms of his body English, he seems extremely efficient on the bike when he's in these enduro stages. Yeah. A different style even than what you see like from his enduro riding. And I think that's something that now we're starting to see where, the, you know, fitness can get you to a certain point, but if you're being inefficient on the bike, you're just counteracting a lot of those gains that you're doing. Yeah, because it's not just pedaling that gets you, you know, mm -hmm. to be fast. Yeah. yeah, and it's really interesting to see. He's kind of changing, he's changing things in that respect. Like, I feel like uh, Jared Graves, Richie Rude, they really came in and they kind of changed it just with being strong and fit. Yeah. But then I almost feel like, which is crazy because Sam's kind of known as the foot out, flat out guy, right? Yeah. But I feel like what Sam's bringing is a level of efficiency to it that's that's kind of unparalleled. Yeah. It's pretty interesting to see, man. So anyways, interesting stuff. Also, he's on Michelin tires and he's winning. Mm-hmm. Which is, I mean, that's that's crazy. Right? Yeah. When was the last time you saw Michelin tires, you know, winning on a tire on a course that was probably so critical for well, that, that was probably back when they were kind of green sidewalls, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> green sidewalls. On the, on the XC bikes. Heck yeah. So anyways, uh, that's the race stuff. Hopefully that delivers you more than just the random uh, inside or random or the results. But uh, the next bit of news, uh, Steven, we were looking at this bike uh, before this and I've been looking at it, I guess, since it came out here. Uh, you know how they say on pink bike, every bike looks like a Trek session. Yeah. This, this does one, not look like it's not like section. a Trek session. It's yeah. the Orbea, Orbea Oise. And this bike is, 
it looks to me like an Epic, like a scalpel, like an ASR, like, uh, you know, insert many bikes. And it is almost identical to a scalpel in every way. In terms of geometry, geometry, angles, Hmm. reach everything. This is a very similar bike. Which is a good way to take it. Absolutely. And like the scalpel, it comes in two different geometry configurations. They come with a 100 mil and a 120 mil version. So there is like a scalpel and a scalpel SE. Yep. And this one, I think in the 120 mil version, it actually changes the travel in the rear. Is that right? I think it comes with a different shock. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not just a a mullet, a reverse mullet change where, you know, you get longer travel. No, it's, and yeah, it's just like, it's just like the scalpel. It's a completely different rear shock that gives it an extra. This one gives you 20 mils extra. 20 mils extra, which is significant. Yeah. We're talking about hundred that's geez, a big yeah. chunk right yep um so the bike's very attractive when you look at it it's a very pretty looking lines. bike yeah mm-hmm. yeah it's i mean it's it's that same kind of design that we see with a lot of different bikes uh so but here's the interesting thing so this bike if you're to set it up with the 100 mil travel and if you're to read like the actual reviews i guess from the first impressions which uh daniel sap by the way did that he's a friend of the podcast awesome guy um, he was commenting on the fact that, you know, the hundred mil shirts sure, fast, don't get me wrong, but the 120 seems like it could just, it's much more so the bike that people would have. Yeah. And I see people, these brands releasing these XC bikes with just 100 mils of travel. And I feel like you're really just addressing a smaller, much smaller corner of that segment now. It's and that's, changing. That's true. But you also have to do, if you're going to have a UCI team, if you're going to have, you know, full on XC race people, you have to have a production bike that matches that for the people that want it for now, for now. But because I feel like that's, that's going to change at the, at the UCI level very shortly too. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and when it does, that's great. I mean, look at what, you know, how capable my hundred mil XC, you know, Mm -hmm. scalpel SI is and the things that we do on that. If it was a 120 mil version, if I had the SE version, it would just be that much more capable. I love that bike. This bike is probably going to just be a a hundred mil party bike. That's really what this is going to be. Yeah. So, or the 120 mil, you know, whichever way you get it, this bike is going to be great. Suspension is changed so much now. So that if you're bumping up 20 mil, it doesn't mean that you're jumping onto a bobbly waterbed. Mm -hmm. These things are still plenty supportive for XC racing. You've got everything that you need there. Yeah. You know, it used to be that you were afraid to go up and travel because you'd get a bike that was inefficient. That's really, that's not really Yeah, that case. doesn't happen until you get to 160 anymore. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, yeah, I have several thoughts on that because I've got the Santa Cruz blur. I've been racing for Santa Cruz for a long time. For a long time. Yeah. Team Santa Cruz Fox. Right. So. Yeah. Highlight or yellow The stuff. blur, you mm-hmm. know, they spec it with the 100, no dropper posts and everything. It's like XC race bike. You see so many Instagram posts and everything, people like, doing trail mode on it and yeah. put a 34 120 on it droppers wide bars and i kind of think well you just made that into a tall boy yeah essentially that's what they did and, yeah. and that's that's the thing with a lot of the companies now they have so many little niche bikes in there every every little thing you'd want to do there's a bike for it specifically yeah. yeah and so like yeah the blur is super capable yeah i started out just swapping all the parts directly over from a tall boy with a 120 and everything yeah and just to see how it was going to handle and i put the 100 on it because it just felt that's what that bike was for. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing too. There are certain bikes that if you throw that 120 on, it's going to change whether it's, it raises the BB height or does something else like that, that it really changes the bike into handling entirely differently. And it might be, you know, a bad difference. It might be exactly. good. It might be bad. You never know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting to see specialized release that we didn't talk about this, but they released the Epic Evo mm-hmm. and which basically does that very thing, right? It just yeah. throws on a dropper, throws on a 120 mil 34 step cast, and then it throws on the wider bars. Um, so it's definitely like a, 
certain bikes just take really well to it. Um, like the ASR was always designed with 120 mil in mind, right? Yes. The SB100 is designed with 120 mil in mind. Yeah. Um, and just like you said, and you're in the case of uh, of Cannondale, they have different bikes designed specifically for that. Yeah. Same front triangle, different swing arm, different linkage, and different rear shock. Yep. So. Yeah. So interesting to see XC Worlds in flux. Liker dudes are about to freak out because they're all going to have longer travel. So <laughs> they're all going to be scared. Yeah. Exactly. Well, but there's already a lot of dropper posts on the XC bikes. So. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. More droppers, more fun. Uh, Ibis introduced something that's a little weird. Uh, handlebar extensions. Yeah. What do you think about this? Um, the thing is, once you set your bar width, once you're used to it and you're spatially aware of it, I don't see a need for ever having to do an adjustable width bar. From one ride to the next. Yeah, for exactly. I'm not going to sit here and go to an enduro at China Peak, say, with the CES series, just thinking, you know, yeah, semi-locally, yeah. and want to run a 760 bar and then get to... Back um, of what, snowshoe or snowshoe mammoth, even, West Virginia. you know, yeah, where, you know, I don't want to, I'm not going to be changing my bar width 40 millimeters or even 20 yeah. millimeters from one race to another. Yeah. That's not, you get used to your, your bars, no matter what width they are. And you're just from then on, you're spatially aware of it. And that's what you ride. And I would agree with that for enduro racing, yeah. but cross country racing now, like I'll take my cross country bike to Downeyville and I completely change the setup. I put on a bigger fork, smaller stem, wider bars. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that's where they can, can fit in. I don't know if the bars that they have are like heavy enduro bars or they're not too light. No, I mean, they're not like ones that you would want to have for an XC bike. Um, you can get like different weights, like the, I think that it weighs 249 grams for the wider one. And then you can get like a slightly lighter one. So, I mean, that's not, not a light handlebar. Mm. Um, it's tapped. The way that this works is it's a carbon bar, but With then an on, aluminum insert. Yeah. It's got threads threaded. on the, on the, uh, basically if you look at the end of the handlebar, it's got threads in there mm -hmm. and then you thread in these little aluminum extensions basically. Yeah. So you'd have to take your grips off and put them back on. Um, but, and if you have like, you know, slip on grips or glue on grips, that's a little bit more of a hassle, but lock ons, it's super easy. Um, and one bar is like more of a flat style bar than they have one with just like a slight rise to it. I have heard of the EWS guys doing this and changing their bar width somewhat regularly based on the course. Like I'm thinking of the Rotorua course where they had that really tight squeeze in between these rocks. That's, uh, they yeah. might be in certain spots in Whistler, for example, where like you feel like you need a really wide bar for all the leverage, but at the same time you go through such tight trees in the Whistler Valley in spots that mm -hmm. they might want to narrow it up. Okay. So I've heard of them narrowing it up and this feels like a product that's designed for EWS you know, like for these guys from their race team, kind of like and trickling down. Yeah. But it might be something that brands end up, you know, people end up going with. I personally, yeah, I'm like, a, I've tried 740s now for a bit. Mm -hmm. Don't like them. Um, I'm back to 780s and that's where I'm at with my enduro bike. So there are plenty of different options, I guess. But uh, yeah, in fact, there's that picture I'm looking online right now. You can see that really tight picture where bar width does matter. So if you do find yourself in a situation where you're, you change bar width or wish you had different bar width regularly, now you have a solution. That's true. <laughs> it's kind of crazy, right? Yeah. And but, it's nice to have that. Yeah. And kudos Ibis for doing something unprecedented and kind of weird. So uh, I like that. That's good. Uh, Fox made some gloves. And it doesn't goat skin. I know, I know yeah. that doesn't sound interesting, but it actually, the goat skin part is what's interesting to me. So I, I'm a super nerd, like I'm. Yes. Very, yes, yes, you are. Yeah, okay. <laughs> 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 With gloves, like, uh, oh, very picky. I'm very picky as well. So. Yeah. Most gloves, these modern gloves, have way too, for me, flexy of an upper, or I guess on the backside of your hand. 
And then what it allows the, the palm to do is the palm usually isn't as stretchy. So then when you don't have enough elasticity on the top, that palm can move independently of your actual, the palm of your hand and thusly cause blisters and lack of control. Yeah. I like a glove to have a lot more compression on the top. So then it's a much more, you know, cohesive unit that your hand fits within rather than creating a slip plane, but something that could help this is having materials like goat skin. Yeah. And it's extremely thin goat skin, I assume. It is very, I'm guaranteed it's very thin. Yeah. Like I'm thinking of the motorcycle gloves that I have that are goat skin and uh, for, for street riding. And those ones, the palm is extremely thin. It almost feels like you're touching your skin when you go through yeah. it. Right? So it gives really good dexterity. That's the whole point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But it doesn't have a lot of stretch to it, no. which is good. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think it bunches, or at least in my gloves that I have, I don't have these ones, but it doesn't bunch up. Uh, it doesn't even feel sweaty. Yeah. Uh, they're really good gloves. So this is the first time I've seen a mountain bike glove with something other than Clarino or, or, you know, or I should say in recent times, a mountain bike glove that has something other than Clarino or an impression Clarino. So yeah. I, uh, it's I, cool. I'm really excited to see this one because I want to see what the progression, if somebody starts using kangaroo skin, which is yeah. super, you know, the MotoGP guys, very good material and very just long lasting. So yeah. um, I would be really impressed to see somebody start bringing kangaroo skin in. So, yep. Yeah. yeah. They're also something very, they're very, very black, very sleek. Yes. Yeah. If it didn't have a Fox logo on the back, you could probably like wear this with a suit in the city on a rainy night. Wouldn't look out of place. So not at all. Um, well, cool. That in covers your, it in your English, uh, your sunbeam tiger <laughs> as you're cruising down with your little Indeed. British racing hat. Indeed. Yes, yeah. exactly. Right. They yeah. do kind of look like racing gloves. They do. They? Yeah. Like they very much look gloves. like car racing gloves. Yeah. Yep. Uh, with that, Steven, I feel like we should get into some questions. The first one is from a guy named Steven. No, nah, this is Stefan. It's a PH. It's not Steven. <laughs> Let's get into the questions. <laughs> okay. Question. That's a ridiculous question. False. Well, that's debatable. <laughs> All right, first one is from Stefan, as Stephen says, but it may very well be Stephen. It might be. It's just spelled Stefan. His parents were just very confused. <laughs> <laughs> it says, not sure if you mentioned it, but I called up the guys at Worldwide with my dilemma, Worldwide Cycler, that is, with my dilemma of whether or not to rebuild my reverb and was recommended the SDG TELUS dropper post. I gotta say it's an excellent post that needs to be mentioned on the show. Not only does it work well and have a close to wolf tooth feel on the lever, but it has a replaceable cartridge for maintenance that only costs around $40. I do like that. Pretty um, sweet. Devin Pelly at SDG is a friend of mine, and I just haven't, you know, done anything to get one or to yeah. get one here for us to try. Yeah, we um, should try. And one. I haven't seen, I haven't seen any bikes with them on it, so it's good to know. Yeah, Stefan E13 still working fantastic uh, okay. on my end. So, which we've actually heard hit and miss of some of yep. them failing very quickly, and then others just lasting forever. So, yeah. yeah, so it's good to see that. Maybe it's because people never clean their bikes. I don't know, but it could be. I'm trying to think about it, you know, like I, I mean. We're very persnickety about that very sort of thing. Very meticulous, yeah. Our bikes are always very clean. I don't know if maybe that's why, but anyway, SDG Telus dropper post. You have another choice with a replaceable cartridge. That's cool. That is awesome. Thanks for the tip, Stefan, Steven, whatever it may be. Yeah. Uh, this next one is from, and I quote Santa Cruz bro. Yeah, we did he not says. say this. I did not say this. It says, first off, want to say thank you for taking the time out of your busy lives to supply us with the quality content. It's good stuff. Cool. We appreciate it. Uh, he says, now to my question. He means that for you too, Clint, in this <laughs> case. Yeah. He says, now to my question. One of the main things I have learned from your podcast is the benefit of a structured training plan. I have no plans to race, but I see nothing but benefits from better for, for, from being in better shape. Forgive me. He says, more fitness equals more fun. I'm planning on starting Trainer Road in the upcoming months. Sweet, man. Good to hear it. And thank you to Trainer Road. We're recording in their podcast studio right now. We are. So. 
He says, with that said, um, he says, I am planning on starting Trainer Road in the upcoming months. With that said, a power meter seems like the best option to get the most out of my programs. Yes, 100%. That's right. He says, I have a road bike and I'll be using with, that I'll be using with a Cyclops Fluid 2 trainer. That's uh, not a bad trainer. Uh, Jet Fluid Pro, I think, is uh, Cyclops, other Cyclops trainer that I, I can recommend. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Or their hammer and all that stuff too is good. Uh, and he says that he's thinking of just getting one power meter so then he can transfer it between the bikes. He's thinking pedals. So he says, what's your guys' thoughts on a value but quality setup that can be easily swapped between road bikes? I appreciate your feedback. You think Garmin Vector Single? Uh, yeah, 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 great choice. Uh, don't worry about doubling power from one leg to the next. It's fine. Uh, as long as you don't change, you know, your left leg to your right leg, it's going to be comparable. Yeah. <laughs> so, and that's kind of hard to do. So you probably don't have to worry about it. Yeah. And the cool thing is if you later want to go to two-sided power, you can do the Vector S upgrade kit and go to a two-sided power so that both pedals are power. So yeah, I'd recommend the Garmin, uh, they're, the Garmin vectors. They're great. Uh, power tap P ones. You can get those. That's another pedal system. Mm -hmm. They're pretty good. Uh, other than that, there are a few other ones. Like I think Favero, um, makes one, I believe they're a, they're a Brazilian company perhaps. Um, I believe they make one and it's got from the users that I speak to from trainer road. It seems like it's a good one, but, uh, I can say for sure that I know the Garmin's work yeah. well. And one of the things with the Garmin's is they use a Shimano SPDSL. Mm -hmm. So it's a very standard, easy to find cleat. Mm -hmm. The power tap P ones are a very specific power yeah. tap P one pedal cleat. In fact, Alec Kizis, our neighbor here yeah. in the office next to us, yeah. we had to get him their specific cleats when his broke. Yeah. Kind of annoying. Yeah. So front. if that becomes a thing, it's easier to mm -hmm. find Shimano. SPDSLs. Yeah. Basically every bike shop has SPDSL cleats. And so. if you don't, it's not a bike shop. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so, uh, hopefully, and I love that a Santa Cruz bro wants to train like that. I like it. He's busting stereotypes. He wants to be faster than the other Santa Cruz bros. Mm -hmm. Indeed. On his yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Are you really, really a Santa Cruz bro? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I have a feeling like he might have a highball. <laughs> yeah. He might not yeah, be a exactly. Santa Cruz bro. Stigmata. Stigmata. Yeah. Stigmata. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Um, Sterling says, awesome podcast guys. I love listening to it at work. I just wanted to get your opinion on something. I fractured my wrist earlier this this year. So I'm not going to be riding really at all for the rest of the year. Oh, that's a bummer. Uh, I have a 2012 Cannondale Jekyll four that I have upgraded some. So you're familiar with this bike, I assume. Yeah. Yeah. Didn't you, did you have this bike? I never had the 26 inch version, which back in 2012, that's what the Jekyll was. Gotcha. I okay. had the 27.5 version in 2015 when they came okay. out with the Jekyll team with cool. the lefty Supermax. Many details. Okay. Uh, XT, he put on XT brakes. He put on new Fox 34 stanchions and insides of my fork. So I assume he kept the lower chassis the same, yeah. but just changed the upper and everything else. Uh, he says, and he has new rims. I'd like to know since I won't be using it this season, if I should just keep upgrading it accordingly, or should I try and sell it and save for a newer bike next year? I'm going to school at Utah state university. So I don't have a lot of money to drop on a bike right now. Thanks for your input. Um, well, that just depends. You're on a 26 inch bike. 26 is kind of, it's getting to the point where it's going to be hard to find wheels for it to mm -hmm. upgrade. It's going to be or good wheels anyway. So you're yeah. going to be custom building whatever you do. Um, tires are also going to be harder to find at bike yeah. shops. Yeah. Nobody's making new tire designs in 26 26. inch at all anymore. So it, it it depends. What do you want to upgrade still? If you've already upgraded parts, are you going to be upgrading much else that's expensive or you know, the thing is that bike is going to get to a point where its value is going to diminish to where it's not even worth it to sell it. Yeah. I feel like, uh, you're probably not going to get a ton from selling this bike. No, I, I don't, is. I don't think you will. Um, 
you know, the, the, the one thing that I would say is that, uh, if you go with the big three, you know, uh, Trek specialized giant, one of them, mm-hmm. uh, Cannondale kind of falls into this too. Yeah. Um, but Trek specialized and giant, they buy such huge quantities of all of these components that go into these bikes that you can get a good bike for 2000 bucks. Yeah. I know that's still a lot of money. I mean, it's not, it's not like this is cheap, you know, that's still a lot of money. I mean, you can get the new Jekyll, the base model Jekyll four mm-hmm. is 3,200 retail. So, and that's, that, that would that's be a loaded huge box upgrade. suspension, everything and a carbon front triangle. If you went for like, uh, you could get like the new stumpy and like a cheaper model, or you could get like, uh, I'm thinking, man, if you a giant giant honestly beats on value across the board in always terms of, yeah. always they yeah. have the lowest prices you could pick up an aluminum bike and you could get that thing and it would probably have something like a GX 11 speed yeah um, or even NX 11 speed NX I mean, it's not a bad speed, deal and it's going to be yeah. shift very well yeah you might have X fusion suspension on some lower end stuff you know but and hey if you so can change stuff that out play up, play with an upgrade later yeah yeah i would I would touch on the just the athlete side of it less than the technical side. So what's yeah. going to motivate him more to get back on the bike? If he's going to be out of commission for a year, is it his bike that he has custom built for himself? Yeah. Then stick with that and keep tinkering with it while you can't ride. Mm-hmm. Or if he sells it now, the search for that new bike, maybe you can pick up a 2015, 2016 next year used market. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that would really motivate him to get on you know new bike fever. Totally. That's a good point, yeah, because coming back from injury, it can be tough. Uh, that's for sure. So hopefully you didn't break something like a navicular or something like that, that it really takes a long time to or heal. Or what he could do is he could do like I did after my knee surgery, which was build a ridiculously awesome Yeti SB55 and then turn around and sell it before I ever even got to ride it. I got to, I got to ride <laughs> it. You got to ride it. Yeah, yeah. I think I did too. Yeah, you <laughs> rode it. Yeah. And Zach Waymeyer, you three yeah. rode my bike and I never got to. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, that's how it goes, Steven. It is. Yeah. yeah. Don't make bikes that look so good. Then they won't sell so fast. <laughs> that's uh, true. So the next one's from Tim. He says, love the podcast, five-star review. It's been awarded on iTunes. Hey, Woo. thank you. You can do that. Anybody listening to this, and if you don't feel like it receives, or I guess deserves five stars, let us know what we can do. We can change it. And we have lots of five-star reviews, by the way. Many of them. Many. Yeah, we should start reading reviews again. That I haven't in a while. Yeah, yeah. it could be fun. Yeah. Uh, so he says, I've heard you mention your your preferred replacement for a press fit bottom brackets months ago. Foolishly, I didn't write it down, and now I'm ready to replace my bottom bracket. I'd really appreciate if you mention your preference for a solid and creak-free bottom bracket. I think there's two steps to this. Yes. There's a bottom bracket that's good, but there's also a process that's also important with it. Absolutely. Um, E13, press fit bottom brackets are fantastic. Yes, they are. They're very, very good. Um, I've just switched over to using the new SRAM dub cranks and a SRAM dub bottom bracket, Mm -hmm. and they have stepped up their bottom brackets substantially from the old, just entirely plastic press fit cups. Now they have some metal ends. Like, it's nice. Yeah. Um, It's much better. Um, so those are ones that I would recommend there. Um, but the E13, E13 makes incredible bottom brackets. Now installation is a different story though. Installation is a different story. Um, one of the things that I always do on every single press fit bottom bracket is I use, um, there's a company called, um, Rector Seal and mm-hmm. you can get this stuff. It's called true blue mm-hmm. and it is a PTFE infused pipe dope. So it's mm. used for when you have like cast iron pipes that you are, you thread together for your plumbing system and you can get it at Home Depot, Lowe's, any hardware store, you can get it on Amazon and you take a very, very thin film of that and you put it onto the interface on the frame. This works on aluminum frames. This works on carbon 
carbon frames and it won't eat anything. It doesn't hurt your frame. It doesn't hurt your frame at all. You can like uh, afterward, you'll see like if you take out your press fit bottom bracket, which is always a harrowing experience. It involves yeah. the hammers and things. It's very scary. Punches and hammers. and yeah. Yeah. I just you, sell the frame with them. Yeah. <laughs> you, you, feel, you feel like I should not be doing this to my frame. Well, Clint's on the Santa Cruz, on all Santa Cruz. So he's got three uh, bottom brackets. He's fine. Stigmata's yeah, got the press fit. Oh, it does. Yeah, That's oh, right. Does. I forgot. Right. There yeah. Go. Yeah. Um, so in you'll be hammering that sort of thing out and you'll have residue left. Yeah. And then if you just, honestly, all it takes is rubbing your finger in there, it'll come right off. Because it never fully cures into like a hardened epoxy. It's supposed mm -hmm. to stay a little bit fluid. And so what that does is it makes it so that when you're torquing on that crank set and it is slightly moving those bottom brackets around as the bottom bracket shell, you know, flexes, yeah. you basically make it so that it's not going to creak anymore. Yeah. And you keep the dirt out, you keep the moisture out, you keep, yeah. And that's what I, I do that on everything. Yep. It's a smart thing to do. Yeah. I do it on, on every brand new bike I ever build. Yeah. Or people could just make threaded bottom brackets and we'd all be happy. That's a, we should do that. Mm -hmm. We should, you know what, let's, maybe we should call them English. <laughs> hey. We should do, that. we should do bottom bracket standards. Hey, yeah. And yeah, we yeah. should do one left-handed thread and one right-handed thread. Brilliant yeah, idea. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There we go. How do you think the bike industry will take to that? I don't know. <laughs> They'll probably screw it up somehow. Yeah, somehow. <laughs> Uh, this one's from Zach. This is the last one. Uh, Zach says he lives in Spanish Springs. That's where we're from here in Reno. Yeah, this so, is one of our juniors. A suburb, yeah, I right? think so. Yeah. yeah, he says he's 13 years old. It's him. He says, "Want to? I want to be better with bike mechanics, and I feel like watching YouTube videos over and over again isn't helping. <laughs> Any suggestions? Thank you and love the podcast. Tips for, for juniors to get into bike maintenance. Um, I would recommend that in their free time, whether it be like in their fall break, winter break, summer break, whatever, um, come hang out at a bike shop. Tell them you want to be an intern. Tell them you want to learn how to work on bikes. Yeah, that's a good idea. That's really the best way to do it. Yeah, I feel like that's a really good way. And because tinkering with things sometimes can get you into trouble, but if you tinker responsibly, it can be a good thing. Yeah, with supervision. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, just don't uh, don't take hammers to carbon bikes. That's probably step one. Um, Unless you're trained in that hammer. Yes, you know, exactly. In operating said hammer. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I would say one thing that really helps you mentioned watching YouTube videos over and over isn't helping again. I can kind of see that the disconnect that you would have if you're brand new to it, it'd be kind of hard still to do that. Yeah. But the, the main thing I would do too, is get curious about how bikes work. Um, and what I mean by that is look into suspension designs, look into, you know, drive train and, and, you know, the different effects of gearing and everything else. Now that has kind of the physics of a bike. And if you do that sort of stuff too, that'll really teach you a lot on how a bike should work. And it's amazing how just understanding how a bike should properly work from a physics standpoint can really help you understand how to better work on a bike. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't seem like a, a big deal, but it can really help. Right. And it also helps you out on the rider in a race diagnose something that's going on too. Mm -hmm. So you got a weird sound and it's not happening when I'm standing or sitting or whatever, but it happens mm -hmm. when I'm off of the brakes or on the brakes, just knowing where all those pieces go and you can do something specific yeah. on the bike while you're riding it and know then what happens yeah. and what you need to fix. Yeah. I'd still, um, the, the only YouTube videos that I would say I've found to be really helpful. I don't, the GMBM ones, no, not at all. They're, they're bad. Um, but, uh, there's some from, I think it's like mountain bike UK, I think is the name of the organization. They have some good ones. It's a guy named Al and it sounds like he's talking in like a very long hallway. The audio is terrible. This ah, is good. Hi, I'm Al. <laughs> That's like how it starts out. Every one of them. Yeah. And he carries on. Uh, but that's uh, he, he has some really good ones. And then the other thing that I would say is I believe it's Enduro magazine. 
It's like another UK publication. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They have really good um, photographical like walkthroughs on different things too. Nice. Uh, those are good resources. Yeah. Um, also, I I have to say that SRAM does a really good job mm-hmm. with doing all of their videos for tech stuff, whether it be bleeding their brakes, whether it be rebuilding suspension, um, all of their stuff, adjusting. The most daunting thing I think for new people is understanding what the adjustments do on derailers, yes. <laughs> on rear derailers oh, specifically, yeah. Yeah. and understanding how to properly set them up. So um, that's, they do a good job too. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, okay, with that, Stephen and Clint, let's get into the business. Business is business time. It's business. It's business time. Okay, so I wanted to. I've I, I've wanted to talk race promotion on this for a long time with somebody in the know. So I'm really glad you're doing this. I was tempted to do it with Todd Sadow, but I really wanted to get more of his story when he was with us. And when I listened to that, I really wanted to get what he thinks a race promotion. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I left it out there. Um, I guess first things first. What made you go from racing to being on the other side of things as far as putting the races on? Um, well, I kind of have to t- tell the whole story on that. Yeah, please. Yeah. So. When I got into racing, I'm just the type of person that's like 100% into it. And um, my wife would come out to races and she'd be bored. And so she'd just wander on over to, you know, the people putting on the race and be like, can I help? And then she's just a, you know, a a volunteer. And then she got into actually being on staff with different organizations and um, learning the registration, the timing aspect of it and ins and outs. Um, and then I would then therefore be coming to the race early to help also, and then staying after to pack up also. And, um, so just being around it more and more and more. Um, and then 20, late 2013, early 2014, um, had the opportunity for my wife, Jen, to become partner in a timing company called Time Your Race. Um, and this was built by a, you know, a software engineer, um, that, had a friend that was putting on a race series and they asked each other, Hey, can you build something? And we got to do RFID things. And so that's how it was created. And it was custom built for, um, you know, mountain bike racing and, and cyclocross. And, and that specifically didn't come from the running side, which a lot Hmm. of timing systems come from. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what are the, sorry, I don't know if we're jumping ahead here, but that, that piqued my interest. Is there a difference between an ideal system for running versus cycling? Um, in cycling, more frequently you have races that have laps, yeah, or stages. Um, so you're having to deal with different categories, doing different distances or different amount of laps, huh. um, yeah. and you know, and a whole lot more categories a lot of times too. Yeah. Uh, so you have to think about it differently. Uh, running systems, most runs are where there is internet. Yeah. And, you know, they're in cities and things like that. And and so they're built on a web-based or internet-reliant system. Yeah. Um, mountain bike races are off in the hills. Yeah. And it's spotty. So our system was built not needing internet or not even needing any sort of con- um, connection to anything. The, yeah. the timing points themselves can be completely autonomous. Huh. That's cool. Mm-hmm. That's smart. Um, so I guess you, you once, once Jen, your wife got invested into mm-hmm. that company or she became part of that, uh, is that when you decided, okay, we're going to start doing it on our, or we're going to actually start doing this instead of just assisting? Yeah. So it, it happened, um, almost congruently with her being able to jump into the timing side. Um, 
the promoter of uh, the Sacramento Cyclocross series mm-hmm. wanted to step out of that role um, for that series. And um, he asked us if we wanted to, you know, take it on and see what we could do with it. And, yeah. um, you know, it was, it'd been running for uh, 15 years or so at that point. Yeah. Um, so it had a good following and everything. And we, you know, had, we're very thankful that we weren't building something up from scratch there. Um, yeah. And I was like, well, it's, it's my off season as a mountain biker and stuff. Yeah, it should work out. I'd be able to help out. And, um, and with that, we just kind of jumped into it and I had to rediscover cyclocross also as a mountain bike racer. I was like, what's a cyclocross thing? Like way back in 2009. So I jumped in full commitment to it after a whole, you know, enduring mountain bike season, bought the bike, racing A's, getting my but yeah. handed to me it over at BASP and I was like, this stinks. I don't yeah, want, I need an off season apparently. And so yeah. I took a break from it for a while. And then when I came back in, once we had the opportunity to like, it was kind of the beginning of that 2013 season where he started talking to us about, um, taking it over the next season. So we were kind of helping it out, learning how it was gotcha. going that season. And I was like, well, I'll buy a $500 single speed bike off of Craigslist and, yeah. you know, take up single speed. And that's how I kind of really di- rediscovered cyclocross was, nice. was not about the competitive thing. And, and single speed really helped me just go out there and have fun yeah, and enjoy it. And because single speeds are fun. Yeah. Well, very hard, yeah. <laughs> very hard. Yeah. But you just, you just go and you just get on and you just ride as fast as you can. Yeah. Exactly. There's, you don't have to worry about anything else. Um, so jumped into it there, me getting the, you know, the feel of cyclocross and, and different courses and everything. And then we took it over in 2014 and just really tried to make some changes, bring in new venues, bring some new energy to it. Um, people really responded to that. Um, you know, over those next few years, I really learned that I love building cyclocross courses because I, I take, I guess I take my experience in mountain biking and just flow and feel of contours of a hill and everything. Yeah. And if I got a new venue or even an existing one, I feel like I'm going to change something up. I just kind of go out to the park and just walk around for a little bit and just kind of get the feel of the way the hills fall. You know, where do I want this turn, the terrain to fight you on this turn? Where do I want? All right, we need a break. We need something fun here. You know, just kind of a lot more thought goes into it than just trying to take up space. Yeah. And that's, it's not as, as one that was just a racer for a while, it is not just throwing up tape in a park. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So the course, there's a whole lot of thought that goes into it. Um, so that was how we got into race, you know, organizing races and race promotion with Cyclorus. So with, uh, I think, uh, one thing that I want to cover, like just straight across the board. And I think a lot of people wonder this is, is it a sustainable is race organization? Actually, before I do that, uh, one quick thing, what's the difference between a race organizer and a race promoter? Yes. In your terms, I don't. I use both terms, I guess. Yeah. Um, race promoter to me sounds more salesy. Race organizer sounds more like you the nuts and bolts part of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, you have to do everything, mm-hmm. and that's what we end up doing. And it's the sales part is hard. Yeah. Getting sponsorships, setting the prices for the you know the race fees and everything, and then selling it, getting it out there, you know, to where it's something that people want to come to. That's yeah. that's hard. Yeah. Um, I tend to try to make races that I would want to come to. Yeah. And so I gotta, I gotta have that first. It's something that I would, that I 
that I feel like I'm missing out racing if yeah. I don't get to jump in and race it when I'm putting it on. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, and I, I think from the motocross side of things, I like th there, there's a very clear distinction between organizers and promoters and they usually have to cooperate together. Mm. The, the racetrack, because those are not as portable as a, as a, as a mountain bike race mm. or anything like that, where you can just set up a course and take it down. Those ones usually have people that actually own the facility or lease the facility. And then they, they are the ones that take care of it. Right. So they, have the heavy equipment, they run the water schedule, they're the ones that, that, that take care of the track. And they tend to be the race organizers. Mm -hmm. They're the ones that are organizing not only the details of when the race is going to happen, the course being set up, where people are going to park, uh, that sort of thing. And then there's the promoter and the promoter, at least in the motocross side of things, he's the guy that's going out and saying, Hey, we've got this race vendors. You should come here. So, you know, sponsors, you should come here. And this is why. And he basically, what he's trying to do is he's letting the organizer run up a bill. And then what he's trying to do is he's trying to cover it basically mm -hmm. like that's a simplified way of looking at it. Yeah. Uh, but in the cycling world, I noticed that it's, you kind of have to do both. Mm -hmm. You can't really separate them effectively because we don't have a lot of permanent venues that are just cycling specific like that. Right. So yeah, we do Lang Twins Winery. <laughs> I hear they used to make wine there. <laughs> now it's a cyclocross course. Yeah. Are we doing? Are you guys still doing Lang Twins? Yes. By the way, I November love that. Seventeenth. It's yeah. been my favorite course ever. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I think that that's kind of like a difference that maybe people don't understand. There's two sides of it. You can't just you know set up a course and and let people come. Uh, it'd be great if that was the case, but in almost every case, you are the one that also has to go out there and sell the event to people and sponsors alike. Mm -hmm. So with that model. Is it sustainable? Like it, organizing bike races and holding bike races, is it a sustainable model? Um, that's what we're really trying to focus on right now. Yeah. Because um, up to this point, I mean, we're four years into it. Mm -hmm. um, and so we went from timing race, just the timing company, but then we were putting on our own events and we're like, this is more than just timing other people's events. Yeah. Um, now it's clipped in races and it's a whole, you know, all in one business. Mm -hmm. Um, but it was still just Jen and myself yeah, doing everything. And, <laughs> um, we started to really, cause I, I quit my job that I had for 11 years. We're doing wow. this full time. And so we, you know, diversifying across the whole schedule for all year long from running events to, you know, cross country mountain bike and, you know, doing timing for like TDS Enduro and then doing our own cyclocross stuff. So all across the board, we're working all the time. Yeah. And, you know, if we're not it for with me, it's like I'm handling all the equipment and so that's a huge expense, yeah. even in the very least, just in time, the amount of time that you mm -hmm. have to put it in, it's really high. Yeah. So after this spring, because we also took over the Prairie City Race Series. Yeah. Uh, so that was, you know, 10, 10 Wednesday races. And then we're also doing weekend events. Um, that really was the, you know, the pan to the head of like, you guys need to start working on figuring out how you can hire people and spread the load a little bit because yeah. it's too much for Jen and I. And we got to pay attention to our four-year-old every once in a while too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> Every once in a while. Yeah. 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 So, um we're working on it. Um, the yeah. hardest part is that, uh, people have this idea that race fees are, should be very, very low. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. and because it is so hard to get sponsors, cycling, cycling industry has no money to give out. Yeah. They yeah. will give you product, yeah. but as I've found out offering payouts on races or offering awesome prizes, yeah. 
really doesn't get many more people to sign up. It makes your event better to have that involvement. For sure. But it doesn't get more people to sign up. Yeah. So what does get more people to sign up? We're still working on it. I think yeah. I think just having something special, having a complete event, yeah. not just a bike race in the woods, yeah. but taking care of people all day long. Yeah. Uh, this is something that, I mean, so when we started doing this, we looked at race organizations that were kind of gold standard. Yeah. Um, and what were they doing well? Yeah. And this is, they were making complete events. Yeah. So there was something for everybody to do. And for, for us, you know, with a family, there's something for the wife and kid or husband mm -hmm. and kid, if you got a lady racer out there, is something for them to do too. Yeah. Um, so if the venue can be by a lake or in a park with a playground, you know, and yeah. it's, so you got to think of everybody. Or the downtown area where they can right. explore. Right. Because now that, you know, just stereotypically, now the husband doesn't have to get the hall pass to go do that day. Right. It's a family day. Right. And right. he goes, I'm going to race for two hours or I'm going to race just this 45 minute cross race. Yeah. Um, it's a family day and he didn't burn that match of yeah, yeah. relationships. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, so the complete event is what we're after. Yeah. Um, and I think that's what people really want to come to. Yeah. You know, you, something interesting that I find too is I like events with um, unique appeal as well. Yeah. Um, that could be the course. It could be the location. Uh, it could be a format of the mm -hmm. race, something like that. I like, you know, something that changes up. Like for the weeknight races, I, I'm good with just something like, you know what I mean? But just then, showing up at a dirt parking week, lot. Weeknight stuff is, weeknight yeah. stuff is commu community. That's, yeah. It's a little different, yeah, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And so like Prairie City, when we took that over that, like our one goal was to help build the community, bring everybody, if everybody rides a bike off road in that area, we want them out there. Yeah. And even if it's just to be a part of it and help do the barbecue that benefits youth cycling teams yeah, or to go, we did the Grom races out there for five weeks. And these are kids eight to 14 out there on a little short track. Cool. A royal pain for us to put on in time, <laughs> right? You know, race before this race and it's a short track format, which yeah. is really tough to time too. Huh. Yeah. yeah. Cause you got, you know, your 13 year old kids out there hammering, doing 11 laps and, you know, the seven year old kid that's doing you know, one to two. <laughs> yeah. He's, so, and then you got the three year olds on the strider. Uh, yeah. 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 No, yeah. So, um, that would, that's all about community. Just getting people out there. Yeah. Um, that makes sense. And then the weekend events are you having something special about them. Yeah. And that's one thing that I've always felt that you guys have done really well in your race promotion, you know, and I'm going to go back to SAC CX, you know, we had the, you know, you have the Lang Twins winery, you had, um, the, the one that I did the old Sacramento mm -hmm. through the train district. Like, I'm sorry, that was just like one of the coolest races ever. Cause you're and racing through an old train district. Yeah. You're yeah. racing through old Sacramento and you're dealing with like train tracks and the, the gravel boardwalk. beds and you're up on the boardwalk and you get to see the, you know, the ferries down below. And then everywhere there's, you know, spouses and kids mm -hmm. and there's other stuff to do mm -hmm. so that it just made it such a cool experience. Yeah. Something I want to talk with on that is the, the permitting side of things. Cause so from the racer's perspective and I'll play our racer's perspective, I'll play the, um, I'll play the role of the, of the skeptical racer, right? Like, uh, how hard can it be? <laughs> exactly. Right. This permitting thing. How hard can it be? You just submit for it and then you wait and it comes back. Mm -hmm. Um, what goes into permitting and is it as expensive as, as, as we think? I'm sure it varies, but yeah, it varies. Um, the permitting process is your, your, it's, it's our first sales job. Mm -hmm. We have to sell our event to that land manager, mm. whether it's, um, you know, us forest service for a mountain bike race, we have to sell, 
you know, how well we're going to not leave an impact mm-hmm. um, and not impact, you know, the other people that they believe are coming out there for serenity and everything. So in that situation, when you're dealing with a federal land manager like that, Mm -hmm. they're not necessarily interested in how many people are going to come enjoy this great space. Right. They got nothing else to sell. What they really care about is, is maintaining the pristine quality or, or what it was. Yeah. And leaving a little impact. And then you go from that to for a cyclocross in a, you know, an urban park, um, where, you know, people will go out and they walk their dog every morning at 9.07, you know, through this trail and everything. And now we're stringing across course tape. We have to sell that this is our schedule. This is only how we're impacting the park. These are exactly where we're going. Oh, and by the way, when we set up our course the night before, we're making sure not to string tape across these walking paths. And when we're done at the end of the day, we're going to go across with shovels and make sure there's no dirt or anything yeah. in case there's dew or rain overnight for the next morning. People don't come out in the dark and slip on the path. Yeah, Just trying to think of, because especially in the cities, they're they're going to get a whole lot of feedback from those people that live around the park. Totally. And so we have to try to preemptively know what those concerns are going to be and try to help out. And then sometimes, even though we address all of that and like it happened a couple of weeks ago, we address all of that and then we have a great meeting with the parks department and the maintenance staff and everything seems like it's going well. And then they present it to their executive board for the parks district and they just say no. And we have no real explanation of why, or we don't have a way. You don't have any recourse. No, we have no way to correct anything because it was, I don't want, I mean, they just have something against bikes, which is, you know, that's out there. That's possible. But, or they just, they just don't believe that, it's going to be as little impact as we think it is, or, it is. Yeah. Yeah. or or that a track left in the grass is going to come back as quickly as has historically happened. What's a, uh, this is probably impossible to answer, but if you can give me some idea of some permitting costs, like for submission or retention of a permit, what that cost is um, for, for an event organizer. There's, there's different ones. Um, so sometimes for, you know, city park for renting this, you know, this field space and picnic area space and whatnot, it all, most of the time is a set fee. Yeah. Um, you know, usually in our region, it's 500 to 1200. Okay. Um, and that's the, you know, so that's your first fixed cost there. Yep. Um, and then some venues like, you know, your forest service or, um, state parks and BLM, they have a percentage of gross. Okay. So the bigger your event is, the more you have to pay them. Yeah. So, and are those limited? The, how does the, the amount of racers, I I noticed that, you know, in many cases that's capped. Mm -hmm. Um, that could be for any number of reasons, I assume, but is it ever capped from the federal land manager on like forest service land? Do they say like, you can only have this many racers or this? Yeah. And that's, that's based on their impact studies of the trail system and the trailhead. Gotcha. And they don't, you know, they believe that a certain number of foot traffic or a certain number of, of bicycle traffic on the trails at that one time is that cap. So that's got to be challenging in some cer- circumstances. I don't know if you've, I mean, I could envision a situation where you could run up against that, where you feel like this is an awesome event. Mm-hmm. It's got that unique appeal that we were talking about. It also, you know, serves the entire participant realm where it's not just the actual participant, but their family crosses all those boxes. Mm-hmm. Have you had a situation where you've run up against a participation limit that, that makes the race not feasible? Um, not where it makes it not feasible. Yeah. Um, we've 
you know, not hit that limit. And yeah. that, that makes the continuation of the race not yeah. feasible sometimes yeah. or not even come close to it. But, um, I mean, there's, so there's one of our trail runs that we do that, um, the BLM, uh, um, Bureau of Land Management has a limit on, uh, you know, our, our racer cap for, yeah. for the trail impact and, and the trailhead impact because, you know, equestrians and other users that mm-hmm. they want to use that trail. And, um, so, we've been raising that. I think they had it at 300 and then, you know, we keep hitting that limit mm-hmm. each time. And so we keep asking for like 50 more each year and yeah. it's just over time they see like, all right, 50 more, it's not impacting the trail as much. And it's, it's just a process. Yeah. So if you come across a situation where you want to have a race, um, and let's say that you're working with like a city park, um, and you, you know, from the moment that you decide, yes, this is where the race, you want the race to be and you generate whatever plan it takes. Uh, I should say from the moment you decide you have that race to generating the plan, to su- submitting that to the land manager so then they can give you the okay. How long does that usually take? Um, it's so, I mean, it'll vary. So mm-hmm. like forest service for our race, we did in Sly park, they took like five months to do their impact study on it. Holy cow. Um, so we originally were going to try to do that race for the first time last year. And it took them until uh, I think beginning of May to get that back and say, all right, you guys are good. And I'm like, we were going to do this in mid July. There's not enough time to promote it. Right. Yeah. Uh, so we just bumped it back. And then, so there's that experience, which, you know, if they have to do impact studies on things that takes a long time. Um, if it's just a park for like a cyclocross, they're usually pretty responsive. Yeah. Um, so it's, usually a matter of um, a few weeks between when we get in, you know, our application and stuff. And we're starting to get feedback and things if they have questions on things or if they want a map. And it's really hard for me to go out in June and with my cross bike and go right around in a park and think cyclocross. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I got to come up with a course map. Yeah, so. yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, something that I see that with these races, volunteerism, I mean, it's like a, it's not just a nice perk. It's an absolutely like, it seems like it's a critical part of holding races. Mm -hmm. Um, do you see, is there a point where, uh, you know, or can races get to the point where they don't need to rely on volunteers and they just have people that are, it's, you know, it's all paid Uh staff. I don't think so. I don't think so. either. Especially like mountain bike races or long trail runs or long road races. Yeah. They're just so big. You need so many people out there. Yeah. Mm Um, it's, you can maybe get to a point where you're compensating organizations that bring volunteers. Yeah. Okay. So like, for example, I, we're partnered with um, Sacramento Running Association on some of their runs. Yep. And they're, you know, a much bigger organization. We're, you know, learning a lot from them and they have loads and loads of volunteers. I mean, like 150 volunteers for yeah. a race. And I'm looking at this on I do this mountain bike race with 12, yeah. you know, and we're all running around ragged, but, yeah. uh, they donate back to the high school cross country teams that bring the kids out to volunteer. And so there's just loads of volunteers and sometimes they don't have a job other than cheering for racers, yeah, ringing cowbells and it makes the event better. And, you know, they get like, you know, a f- few bucks for every volunteer that they bring out and right. some programs for high schools completely get funded by, they're that. bringing they're volunteers out. Yeah, that's so awesome. it's like not paid staff, but right. It's, yeah. if you can get to a point where you're really compensating your volunteers well. Yeah. We're always trying to take care of our volunteers because we found that the people that come out and continuously help us out 
really just enjoy working together with everybody else that's there and being a part of something bigger. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so we really try to foster that connection that they're after and, yeah, you know, just really f- make them feel like they're included and, and, you know, give them the swag or whatever or, or whatever well, else they want. Yeah. Uh, People often point out running races as, you know, running people often in the cycling side of things like you get so many people showing up for a 5k or a 10k, uh, but for cycling, you know, we don't have that turnout. What can we learn from running races or what are running races doing right that you think uh, we could be doing on the mountain bike side, but currently aren't currently aren't. Um, I think that the, the first thing is that they seem more attainable. Okay. You just need a pair of shoes. And you can go out and do a 5K. Um, mm-hmm. It's the whole committing a felony before you go running. <laughs> that just bothers gotcha. me. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah, That's why you don't run. Well, you don't yeah. Commit felenies. <laughs> I yeah. don't commit felonies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're good. Yeah. So it it's it it's on its front. It's more attainable and and less intimidating. Mm. And I actually I think that's one of the reasons that cyclocross is doing so well. Mm-hmm. Um, is and it's grown over the recent years because it's very attainable. It's not a two hour plus mountain bike race off in the hills where, mm-hmm. you know, whoever brought you said bye and they hope you come back. Yeah. Um, it's doing laps in a park on hopefully a really fun course and yeah. you're doing it for 30 minutes, 45 minutes or an hour. And then you go have lunch with your buddies, you hang out there or you just go back yeah. home and it's, and it's not taking up your whole, your whole day or your whole weekend. Yeah. Um, unless you want it to, you can travel and you can go do different things. But, um, the first thing is, you know, attainability, it's not intimidating. Um, I think that there's a whole, there's a, a little bit of a clicky aspect with Mm -hmm. cyclists. Um, and this, this, some disciplines that have skinnier tires have a little bit more of this than others. <laughs> yes. But, uh, <laughs> talking about roadies <laughs> historically, <laughs> um, but it, you know, with the teams and everything out there, if you, if you're, if I'm a new person showing up to even a cyclocross race, there's a whole lot of even just the lingo of what's going on in a race that you don't even like, what is staging you know, It's five yeah. minutes to staging. What's yeah. that? Yeah. You know, well. it's, it, there's, there's a different, race atmosphere where it's in running race, it's, there's a start line. Everybody's just kind of congregating over there. So yeah. we'll go over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and there's different waves, different categories. I don't know where I fit in. Yeah. There's, so the challenge is how do you make people feel welcome and feel like they know what's going on without them having to ask because people don't want to ask. So they oh, don't yeah. want to, they don't want to release that. They don't know what's going yeah, on. Yeah. They don't want to feel dumb. Having yeah. a guy riding around in a tutu helps <laughs> as <laughs> I understand. Yes. You're, you're the yeah. guy that needs to seeing be other people that don't take it seriously. That yeah. helps alleviate that kind yeah. of serious clicky. Attitude. Totally. And the other thing is, you know, another distinction is like with cyclocross, you, where else are you going to get the opportunity to drink while you're racing? <laughs> people literally <laughs> hand you. It's true. People do. <laughs> or scotch or whiskey or whatever. And it's, yeah. Bacon, dollar bills. Bacon, yeah, all of this. Yeah. Um, You know, it's, I I think, perhaps another misunderstood part of the event organization process is like with the course, like uh, CES racers, in my mind, like so many people that ride CES, they have to be the most ungrateful bunch. Perhaps (laughs) just because I'm around them. A lot of them, they're bratty. It's incredible. Like you have these great races going on, like shut your traps, like you're (laughs) complaining. Yeah. I'm standing in line for 30 minutes. And you see that with the downhill racers at the World Cup level too. Yeah. Those guys complain about the courses so much. And it's like, look guys, if we didn't have courses, what in the world would you complain about? They'd find something. But like it's it's just... um, 
course selection. It's like a big, it's a divisive topic because, you know, one guy wants something else and this gal wants something totally different. And then, you know, you get these people that just basically tell you exactly what the ideal course is uh, mm -hmm. for everybody, mm -hmm. but from their perspective, when you're creating a course, are you trusting intuition or are you looking at this very much like saying, okay, well, these, this group of people is going to want this, this group of people is going to want this very much. So how do you weigh that? Yeah. So you know, mountain bike race, like the mountain bike trail is the course you don't, can't do a whole lot with that. Well, how about but, selecting trails though, on the mountain bike side of things? It's like, think, um, cause I, that's a, another option. Like if you have plenty of trails to pick from in a certain network. So think of in just in CES, for mm -hmm. example, think of the Battleborn Enduro that was here on Peavine mountain. You uh -huh. said you just went and rode that. Yep. There's lots of trails up there, mm -hmm. but I think what Jonathan's getting at is you have to logistically think, okay, this group of racers is going to like this trail. These are, you know, these people are going to like this, so on and so forth. But then you have to logistically think about how you're going to link that all together. So you don't have people crossing each other so right. that you can make it work yeah, and do. Yeah, what, what things do you consider? Yeah, there's sure. a whole lot of other things to consider other than just, you know, the guys on the track. Yeah. So, I mean, right down to where are, you know, how are people entering the venue in their cars? And then what's the people flow when they're on foot out? Mm. Um, mm -hmm. First thing we learned that first year of cyclocross, make sure two things, make sure they don't have to cross the course to get to registration <laughs> and they don't have to cross the course to get to the bathrooms. Yeah. And that's so like you have to start to think about all the other different aspects of an event, not just the bike race. Yeah. So then once you can start to get the people flow figured out for your participants. What's the people flow of anybody else that might be there? Mm -hmm. um, are there any appeasements we need to make to the land manager mm -hmm. in that regard? Mm -hmm. Just be like, do we need to say, all right, the other people that usually use this, this park will just say that, you know, they can use this section and this tra these trails over there. And there might be a really good mm -hmm. trail that we want to race on over there. But in order to get the whole thing, we had to give up that little piece of the pie mm -hmm. over there. And so, you know, whether it's, it, so that's the land manager thing. Um, and then the one of the, what comes to mind is something I read um, that Carl Decker wrote a few years ago about sea otter. Yeah, yeah. Everybody complains about the sea otter course from for mountain bike, the cross country and everything. It's like a road race, uh, yeah, you yeah. know, well, yeah, it, you wouldn't go ride your mountain bike on that trail, but it's a race. Yeah. And that's why you're here. You're racing against the other guys. Yeah. And you're out here to represent your sponsor, your team, or what, whatever else other reason you race, yeah, whether totally. it's just, I'm just committed to fitness and discipline. Um, that's why you're out there to race and you're racing against the other dudes that are out there breathing hard at the same yeah. time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, it may not be the best trail, but it's a race. Yeah. And so. that's what you're signing up for. I couldn't agree with that more. And I feel like I look at the top racers that, you know, they, they don't complain about courses. They mm -hmm. just, they just race. Mm -hmm. And you understand that that's the game that you're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, it's great. Don't get me wrong. When a course has like, you know, perfect, amazing, you know, and exactly what you would want trail, mm -hmm. but you have to consider that the person behind you in front of you, you know, uh, the gal racing at the front of the pack compared to the gal racing at the back of the pack, totally different priorities as for, as far as what's an ideal course. Yeah. Um, one thing I want to ask, and it kind of goes along those lines is insurance. Um, do you find yourself getting into situations where you have to go, look, I'd love to include this, but we simply can't Yeah, because of the, I'm, I guess I'm, the litigious culture we yeah. have here in the States. And, and I worked for 11 years in insurance. So okay. I, I, I have that history of um, being on the other side of a claim yeah. to know, um, 
what's that, you know, what that's like and, and, and thinking about the liabilities and potential liabilities out there. Yeah. And there's just some, I mean, so we got the Motherload Epic coming up in a few weeks yep. and the start of stage three, which is um, Salmon Falls or Darrington Trail there, mm-hmm. there's a split right off the bat. And the one on the left that takes the low line is what most people take when they're just mm-hmm. out there riding that trail because the split on the right is just a hike a bike for most people. Mm-hmm. But for our race, we use that climb up because there's a sheer drop off on that left side. And I don't have the bandwidth to go out and put up all the netting and everything to catch yeah. the person that couldn't get out of their pedal and they fall the wrong way. Yeah, it's really not worth it. Somebody call Steve Mathis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the Sorry. The I Nets. Super cross jokes. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's – clearly think about that. And, yeah. you know, mountain bike side is like you have l- legitimate danger there. And then in cyclocross um, – you have some people that just can't hop a curb. Yeah. And to think about, you know, everything from the beginner level and the 12 year old junior out there racing to, to the pro. Yeah. Um, Keep keeping all that in mind. And that's the challenge, especially with cyclocross is making a course that's interesting for a pro, but attainable for a beginner racer. Are insurance costs for an event organizer, like a, a, a majority cost, if you're to break down the different costs that you have, like, is it a big thing? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very high cost. And especially if you don't put on many events, mm. you you buy insurance event by event. Mm. That's very, very expensive. Gotcha. Um, we have, you know, the, the business of putting on events all throughout the year. Yep. And thankfully, we found a way that it it we, we're insured as a business and we don't insure event by event anymore. And nice. we're so thankful to have found that. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, so... Um, it's still very expensive, yeah. but it it spreads the load a little bit more. So we can afford to try things like doing Grom races yeah. and having 50, 60 kids come out. Because you don't have to insure each event. Right. Because like yeah. it's, yeah. So. Do, what about, so that leads us to a big question, uh, USA Cycling. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've seen more people complaining after national champs, and I kind of get it, but at the same time, I kind of like get over it that uh, national champs weren't paid. There wasn't a purse. And, you know, a lot of riders are upset about that and they blame it on USA Cycling, you know, Mm -hmm. for not having that. Um, We'll talk about purses in a bit, but is USA Cycling necessary or what value do they add to an event organizer? Um, So this can be a tricky one to answer. Yeah, (laughs) no. And and the thing is, is first two years ago for cyclocross, we included USA cycling and we had an agreement with them um, or at least an understanding that Mm -hmm. then when we came back for the next year to do a split day sanctioning, only sanctioning with them for the B's and A's, Mm -hmm. the higher level and leaving the C's out of it because we didn't feel that USA cycling currently had anything to offer C's. Yeah, yeah, they don't. And frankly, that's no. also what we heard from USA Cycling. But um, <laughs> <laughs> good, <laughs> okay. Yeah, wait, 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 yeah. sell it, guys. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But uh, so there was that misunderstanding that we could do that again, leading up to nationals, and offer that opportunity for racers to really build up their points for nationals and everything. And they changed their mind on um, no, you have to sanction your whole event. Huh. Um, we think they changed their mind. They thought that was the agreement the whole time. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes there's just misunderstandings happen, but we choose not to sanction our off-road events with them because we don't feel that they have anything that we need. 
Yeah, because I mean, what would they offer? I guess that they would offer, they, they do offer an insurance package, I believe. That, that is their product to an event promoter. That's really the only thing. Other than yeah. that, they can try to say that there's appeal because it's a sanctioned event to the racer, but right. um, in some cases there is, don't get me wrong, because you need to chase points. Mm -hmm. uh, but for the vast majority of people, especially when you get into the mountain biking side of things, yeah. there's actually an aversion that I see that's right. definitely developing to, to right. USAC events. Yeah, um, so that's... Uh, and the thing is, is I, for years, was working through the USA Cycling system of getting points and everything and, mm -hmm. you know, earning that pro license when it was, man, their system was weird. And I, I was traveling around <laughs> to these races and racing against ghosts and Cat 1s, <laughs> you know, because I had to finish in the top three of all Cat 1 racers. Didn't matter if I blew away my category. Yeah. And so I'm, it was just a time trial every it's race. It's a mess. So... You know, they have their system that I work through. I We sacrificed a whole lot for that to happen. And, you know, I still hold a pro license. And it's a system I really want to believe in it. Yeah. I really want there to be a unifying organization that builds up cycling. Yeah. And builds up off-road cycling, yeah. cyclocross and mountain bike. I really want that to exist. They don't have anything going right now where I see they're really building up off-road cycling. I'd agree with that. I, I want to do a podcast at some point. If anybody knows Derek Bouchard Hall, <laughs> the president of the USA of USA cycling, I want to have a conversation with him. So I think it'd make it for a fantastic podcast. He's a smart man. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I want to understand the dissonance between the comprehension of the general public versus perhaps the vision of, of, of where he wants to take it. Cause I think there is a lack of communication. So, and, and on the insurance side, so that that's their mm -hmm. product that they offer an event promoter. Dealing with USAC officials and the added paperwork aside, you know, yeah, yeah. that's yeah. that. So there's other stuff to do that's kind of a hassle with that. But yeah. just on the insurance alone, that's if it was a closer margin between what we pay in insurance per event and what they offer, then it would be okay. I could maybe convince my wife to, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she's the bean counter of us. So yeah, yeah. I could maybe keep pushing for that because I really want to believe in it. Or if they could have some sort of like waiver where, okay, so they look at us or other organizations like Epic Rides or Bike Monkey or whatever. Okay, you guys are a professional organization putting on events. You got your stuff together. Yep. Um, it's kind of like a risk and, you know, risk management yep. procedure that you have these basis coverage on your events. All right, you don't need to buy our insurance. Yeah. Just list us as additionally insured or whatever, and you can have our sanctioning. You can take racer licenses and submit Perfect. it to ours, us for our results. Yeah. We we offered USC Cycling as to try to get a compromise to pay them 50 cents a racer or whatever it would be, just a, a marginal amount, just so we could submit results to yeah. them and have our racers that care about it get in that national ranking system and get in for upgrades. Should I, should I get super deep on like a parable right now about my garden? <laughs> Sure. <laughs> but first, I need to ask Clint what his feelings on kittens are. I <laughs> love this? kittens. I want more kittens. I understand <laughs> that Clinton really loves kittens. What is what's going on I here? Think, I think there's yeah, a really. I think there's a fear of every time I go out that Jen has that I'm going to bring back a kitten. <laughs> okay. You like cats? Yeah. Okay. There well, we, we are. We only have two. So here's the there was a deal made. We could only have This is a good question. A great tangent. Yeah. We could only have as many kitten cats 
as there were people in the house. Yeah. Our well, kid, yeah. our son is four years old. And I is a person. Yes, he is a person. She <laughs> maintains that she meant adults in the house. Well, she should I have think, been more. I think we're out another kitten. Yeah. You should get another kitten. Okay. Back to your topic. Sorry. I, I'm definitely not going to go off on my, on my parable now. That would be too far off. We've strayed. No, um, let's Coming back. Um, I think that, uh, yeah, we're going to leave USAC there where it is. One thing I want to cover, and this is a personal frustration of mine, um, and I actually collected data for this very thing to try to separate my opinion from actual opinion, uh, and that I should say publicly held opinion, um, races that fall on Sunday. So I don't race on Sunday for religious reasons, right? So um, six days a week I have for for me, my family, everything else. Then on the seventh day, I try to, you know, that's in our case, you know, on Sunday, I try to dedicate it to whatever God wants. So usually that's, you know, spending time with family, Mm -hmm. spending time helping other people that need it, that sort of thing, right? Um, and it's more about a mindset thing, you know, cause everyone said, well, you can go to a race and help people. And it's like, yeah, I could, you know, mm-hmm. I could justify it's all day. Church, right? like, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, like, don't tempt me, tempt me, man. I'm good at justifying, yeah. but there's, you know, a principal side to it. So that's why I don't do it. But that aside, okay. Totally separating that. I find that a lot of, especially in the cycling world and the motocross world, it's like a tradition. It's on any Sunday it was the old movie. Uh-huh. And like, they always race on Sunday. I find Sunday races compared to Saturday races to be much more inconvenient. And this was a personal opinion that I had. And then I put this out to a poll um, and I had, I think overall I had something like 6,000 something respondents. So uh, definitely a big field to pull from, right? Mm -hmm. And out of the 6,000 respondents, 80% of people said that they preferred a Saturday race over a Sunday race. And then for those that did say that they preferred a Sunday race, um, I asked each one of them, I asked them why. So I just had an automated response thereafter that said, why do you prefer a Sunday race? And then for Saturday, I asked people why they preferred Saturday. And on Sunday, 80% of the Sunday people all said that the only reason that they prefer a Sunday was because they work on a Saturday, which Mm -hmm. I totally get it, right? So, but across the board, it's fair to say that people prefer a Saturday race. Mm -hmm. And the the reasons that people cited were the fact that like, I don't have to drive home, you know, at at night and then go to work in the morning or, you know, with our kids and we go to these races, then, you know, they have school the next morning that can be really tough when we're traveling to go to these races. Or people say that that way I still have a day that I can get everything done. Racers, like uh, serious racers were saying that way, if I race on on Saturday, then on Sunday, I can throw in more training. Whereas if I have a race on Sunday, I don't want to train really hard on Saturday because I don't want to tire myself out. Mm -hmm. Plenty of different reasons, Mm -hmm. right? Um, whereas some people that said they preferred Sundays, they said, it's nice to have a Saturday where I can prepare everything so that I can race. Mm-hmm. That was really the only reason that was consistently given across the board. Mm-hmm. Have you guys noticed anything, or do you try to put events on certain days, uh, on what, like on Saturdays before Sundays, do you notice any difference in the data? Yeah. Um, I think Saturdays preferred also that yeah. we, for cyclocross, um, try to put, as many races as we can on Saturday. Um, mm-hmm. It's really nice for us to have that Sunday to unpack. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm sure. And it's it's really nice for all of our staff and volunteers mm-hmm. that have worked all week also to come help out at the race and stuff on Saturday, and then they have Sunday to rest for them too, mm-hmm. where you know they don't have to help us set up and pack and you know get prepped for the race on Saturday if they're there for that or on Sunday work a long day <laughs> yeah. and then they you know it's not just the racers they have to go home and clean up and then go to work on Monday too it's it's all this volunteers and staff too totally yeah so it's easier on everybody involved i think yeah um there there are others you know those people that 
that have to work on Saturday or they coach, you know, high school sports teams, which games on Saturday or, yeah. or meets on Saturday. Um, that's just the challenge. Um, and then sometimes you just have venues, like if you're talking cyclocross where there's soccer games totally. on Saturdays. Yeah. So you got to pick the Sunday. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, I, I presented that data to a local race organizer. Um, I, I'll just, I'll just say the name, um, because they had dealt with this very poorly. Um, but the folks that put on the Nevada city dirt series that oh. they were putting that on mm -hmm. and I brought it to them. I said, you moved all your races to Sunday this year. That's personally disappointing. Um, but disregarding my personal opinion, I gathered a bunch of data for you and the majority of people. And I shared that with them basically like in a report. And they said, well, you know, our registration's higher than it's ever been this year. It's like, well, yeah, because this is the first time you've been a state championship. <laughs> That's going to happen if you're a state championship, you yeah. know? Um, so it's just a, a big point to me is at the very least have it varied. I see a lot of races that just kind of like stick to one day. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're. I feel like you're missing out in a lot of cases because you're not going to be serving people that work on Saturday. And they, you know, and they never can get a Saturday off, but they can get a Sunday off and vice versa. Yeah. Um, it makes sense to vary it. So if if you're an event organizer out there, very things <laughs> help people out. Um, uh, let's talk about the Motherload Epic. That race is coming up. Did you do the Great Auburn Epic Race too? Did you? No, was that yours? And I, no. I, that was not us. That was a different organization. Yeah. Um, I I think that they canceled it. Yeah, I don't think it ever happened. Oh yeah. So um, Motherload Epic is different than that. Mm -hmm. Very different. I think we even talked about it. We last did. Year. We did talk about it last year. Yeah. yeah. Um. This is a cool race. Uh, do you want to explain really quickly? Because we didn't even get into, and this isn't the time or place necessarily to talk about all the different formats of racing, mm -hmm. but describe the format at least of this race. Okay. So this is a thirty-two mile point to point four stage cross country race. Essentially, I call it a trail race because. It, it gets pretty, you know, rocky in there and stuff. So you're not riding a hardtail on it. No, I mean, <clears throat> hardtail will do okay, but it's, it's a long, it's, it's not quite a marathon, but it's, yeah. it's a trail race. 32 miles is a, yeah. is a, is a long time. And then it's kind of got that enduro format worked in, right? which I feel yeah. like more and more XC races need to have that. That's yeah, smart. It provided, I mean, there were pretty seasoned racers that did it out there last year. It provided a really interesting aspect of strategy to the race. Yeah. There were guys that, and if I would have raced it myself, mm -hmm. I would have done the same thing. I don't want to stop. Yeah. I just, I get to the end of the stage. When can I start the next one? I'm, I'm at this, I'm at this pace. Yeah. I'm at this level. Let me go. You know, let I get me a little go. food or whatever. Let me keep going. Yeah. Um, and then there were guys that treated it like an enduro race and finished the stage Went down in the lake and cooled off. Yeah. Came back, ate some food, laid on a picnic bench for about <laughs> 20 minutes, and got on their on bike, him. and then started over a warm up process yeah. again. As they Warming go to the next up stage. easy. And then they're ready and primed for the next stage, recovered from the last one, and then they hammer it hard for 30 to 40 minutes. Smart. Yeah. Wait, yeah. you had 30 to 40 minute stages? <laughs> yeah, that's the difference between <laughs> that's <rad>. enduro <laughs> and like XC enduro. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So they're. Um, yeah, 30, 32, 33 was, I think, our shortest stage. I saw your pre-ride wow. from yesterday. Ride. Your stage three uh, scouting yeah. was 17 miles. Yeah. Well, because that was a ride out to. Out and back. And then, every okay, stage okay. is an eight-mile stage. It yeah. just conveniently nice. worked out that way. That's nice. awesome. Um, yeah, and so, yeah, that that's stage three, but that's an out and back. Yeah. So. Nice. So well, then, and to then get back the stage, the stage itself, the race course is just course. one way. Yeah. When you have the whole race going as an out and back, how do you deal with that logistically of getting riders from one, once they're finished, how do you get them back? It is, there have been some point to point races and like one of the biggest ones around Downeyville itself is like, yeah. 
get yourself to the start on your own. Yeah. We'll have maybe a bus or two hit <laughs> you back, but you're on your own yeah. on this point to point to figure out the logistics. One of the things that, so for this race, we wanted to really try to make it all, you know, fully supported is, so we are renting buses from local school district to come. Everybody meets at the finish line because we want everybody's car where they finish. That's where it helps them stick around. They can totally. go, they can change, they can get out of their chamois, whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then, so they park where the finish is going to be. We bus them to the start. Mm-hmm. It takes about 40 minutes mm-hmm. to drive all the way up there. And... Now, so we got all the riders to the start, but their bikes also yeah. need to come. So yeah. last year, thankfully, um, we had Mike's Bikes as a sponsor, and they they have you know shops all over NorCal, and yeah. they have bikes that uh, trucks that transport all the bikes, and so they let us use three of their box trucks. Nice to haul those. This year we don't have them; they have a big sale going on. They can't yeah. devote those, so we'll be. We've been trying to recruit local moving companies to yeah. be like, hey, come handle people's prized possessions and yeah. you know make an impact on the you know marketing value there. Yeah, um, we're still working on that. But if we don't, we'll end up you know renting some U-Haul vans, and trucks, and Making and that. doing it you know the same in the same way with um, you know. Uh, there's a lot of transport companies to handle it, just yep. moving blankets and stack the bikes nicely. Yeah, it's the way the demo trucks do it. Too. Yeah, so you smart get, demo trucks. Yeah, so you get uh, riders on their bikes to the start. Now you have your first timing point. Yeah, is the start, and you start the waves and everything. And so now you have to be thinking all along this chain where all of your course marshals are going to be and uh-huh. how are they getting to these locations. And then when you get to the finish of the stage, you have a timing point there. How are you getting the timing equipment and people to run the timing system there? And then to the start of the next stage. And so then, then they have to leapfrog almost? No, because no. it moves so fast. Like the, the fastest racers are moving through so quickly that there's – and it's all pretty remote. There's no way to get, say – So you can't do it. People from – that did the start and the finish of stage one to even to stage four start and finish because you'd have to drive all the way around the south side of Folsom Lake and up yeah. Granite Bay. So you have to have multiple checkpoints then all the way through. So yeah. you have to have a lot of timing system infrastructure mm-hmm. to make that happen. Yeah, eight yeah, so timing this, points. There. This will be four starts and four finishes, completely independent, no overlapping of anybody. Wow. So you've got eight sets of people. So you, while you're worrying about all that and pulling your hair out, uh, the racer doesn't have to worry about that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, this is going to be, this is a new format for now that I don't think is going to be new for long. I think that this is going to be the the status quo moving mm-hmm. forward with XC stuff. I think that it's, you know, ba- races are going to be more defined as how much up versus how much down rather than, you know, an XC race separated mm-hmm. from an enduro race. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a pretty cool format. Where's the race at? Like, um, it, it, so this, you're from our local region. We have people listening all around the world okay. right now, but where, where's the race at? So it's, it's, it's around Folsom Lake area and uh, Northern California. Cash. Yeah. So it, and it's called the Motherload Epic because it is the route. The start location is where gold was discovered in California. Nice. Uh, it's near where that was in Coloma. Yeah. And Coloma, yeah. so Coloma, yeah. the route basically follows the South Fork of the American river all the way down to Folsom. And so that is the route when they discovered the Motherload. Oh, cool. That they traveled back to Mormon Island, which was the encampment there near Folsom. Oh, cool. So there's the history of the name and, and the route itself. 
so the race has the check for the box for the appeal. We have a good timing system. Oh. Has a cool location. You don't even know the coolest part of this yet. Oh, do tell. Uh, there's boats involved in a mountain bike Ooh. race. <laughs> you get to ride a boat across Folsom Lake yeah, to go awesome. for your one of your transfer stages. Yeah. So so we bus everybody and their bikes to the start, and they get to end, the end of stage three mm-hmm. in a place called Peninsula Capground, which is this northeast corner of Folsom Lake. Mm-hmm. Which, if you're in Folsom, will take you an hour to drive around the lake to get to. Oh, wow. It's very remote. Yeah. Um, and stage four starts over in Granite Bayside. Yeah. So we have recruited friends that have boats and people we know and um, for to have wake boats and ski boats to yeah. transport the riders across the lake over to Granite Bay for nice. the start of phase, stage four. And then we have rented pontoon boats to put their bikes on. Nice. And, and so you can literally yep. on your segment after your stage three, you could wake you board. can wakeboard or ski across <laughs> yes. Folsom Lake yes. before awesome. you get on your bike again. That's we were all very surprised that that didn't happen last year. Um, <laughs> yeah. I thought someone did. No, I thought there not, was one racer that did. Not that I heard of. Oh, okay. Everybody. It's because you didn't show up. <laughs> it, it was, I mean, it's in August. It's hot. Everybody was pretty wrecked by the end of stage three. We have an oasis of an aid station there put yeah. on by a local running club, Sloppy Moose Running Club. Yeah. Those guys are fantastic. They're all cross racers and bikers too. Yeah. They had, you know, slushy margaritas and they were making quesadillas on this Stevens big on his paella way. pan and everything. <laughs> I'm in. So yeah. they, and bacon wrap p- pickles, of course. That's the big thing. Nice. Yeah. Uh, so that was, people didn't want to leave, yeah, and, yeah. but then they're like, well, I guess I should get on the boat. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's a cool so, event. Man. So they get on the boat and they sit there and then they go to get off the boat and they cramp up. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I should have eaten that bacon wrap pickle. Yeah, yeah there yeah. we are. Yeah, how cool! So this race sounds awesome. Um, where can people find out more about that race? Uh, Motherloadepic dot com. Cool, is awesome. Motherload L- load is L O D E. L O D E. Yes, mm-hmm. and mother is spelled normally. Yes, it's not with the U like no, the strap yeah. from backcountry research yep. straps. Oh, yep, or you can get there from cliptonraces dot com. And when is the race happening? It is August 18th. August 18th of this year. Cool. Is it uh, annually around this time of year for those that are listening around the world that can't make it if they do end up wanting to come to something like this? Yeah, this is uh, the second year we've done it. Uh, So same time, you know, same weekend uh, this year as it was last year. Um, I've... I'm working. I mean, there's a whole jump in the lake aspect and yeah, cool yeah. off and the lake. We also have to deal with the lake level. And, yeah. um, so it needs to be high enough to have the boats. Yeah. Um, so I would like to have the race at a cooler time of the year yeah. if possible. And so I'm continually working on the land managers to let us do that. Yeah. They're hesitant Yeah, makes sense. because of other trail users and everything, but makes sense. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. Well, Clint, thanks for joining us. Thanks for um, having me. Let's close it out with our tips. What do you say? I like tips. All right. You don't care they'd count on your tips to live? Tips time. Okay. Um, we'll see what Clint has for a tip for us. This is uh, a surprise. Ooh. Do you want, can you lead on yours? Steve? I can. Cool. Go ahead. So I finally upgraded from the Phoenix 3 Sapphire, the Garmin watch. Yes. Um, I have the Phoenix 5 Sapphire now. Ooh, fancy. Um, we, we both of us are watch guys now. Yeah, you've got a 935, right? Yep. Yeah. So um, Garmin Forerunner 935. People yes. will ask. Sorry, Forerunner 935. Yeah, yeah I should um, say these things. Yeah. I just, it's, it's everything that the Phoenix 3 was in with better guts 
Is it lighter at all? It feels a little bit lighter. The thing is, dimensionally, it's a little bit smaller than the three because I have the standard five. I didn't yeah. get the little S and I didn't get the the big X version. Yep. Um, I just got the standard one, which is a little bit smaller, a little bit lighter, um, but in general, it feels very similar. And you don't have, I noticed that you don't have a metal band on yours right now. You just have the rubber band. Well, I do have the metal band. I try, for, the thing I learned from the Phoenix 3 is that that dark anodizing wears off really fast. Yeah. So I'm only using, and it's $170 band. It's ridiculously expensive. (laughs) And, um, so with the Phoenix three, I didn't want to change bands back and forth because you had to undo the little, you know, the bolt with the little, now it's got the easy. Now it's the quick release system. So I just, it takes five seconds to flop that. So I just run the, the silicone band unless I'm going to like a fancy dinner or right court date. Yeah. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Joking. But then when we're riding, it's super nice to have these rubber bands yes. that are nice and light. Exactly. That I, I really like the, about the 400 935. It's just so light that even on gnarly North star trails, which in spots, it really doesn't get much gnarlier than that yeah. in spots on those trails. Yeah. I don't, I don't notice the watch bouncing. Yeah. It doesn't bit. bounce around at all. Super um, light, so. yeah, it's super light. Um, I really like that the, the heart rate monitors built in cause I had one of the, the earlier Phoenix threes before they started yeah. putting heart rates in them. Um, but I noticed the sinking to Garmin Connect and the for the daily activities, it's just a little bit more streamlined. It syncs a little bit faster. Um, the Wi-Fi connection is a little bit better. Just everything yeah. about it is just a little bit more refined. Step higher. Yeah. yeah. And you have the Sapphire glass, which is, uh, I wish that they had that on the Forerunner. Uh, the reason that that's nice is because then, you know, when you scratch it against yeah. a tree or something else like yeah. that. And I, I originally had a Phoenix 3 non-Sapphire and I scratched the, the lens on it almost immediately. Yeah, I bought, I bought some, uh, I bought three different glass lens caps to put over the top oh, of our gotcha. covers yeah. on mine. So pro tip, if you don't get the Sapphire one. Yeah. So if you don't want to spend $900 on a yeah. watch that has a Sapphire lens, just yeah. get a normal one and put a cover on it. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to share more of a process. Uh, I've been doing a ton of work and I know that people are, people keep asking me what they want to see, what specific things I'm doing for my hips. But to be honest, uh, cause I'm doing a bunch of PT to try to fix the knee issue. And a lot of it is focused in on the hips and, uh, Honestly, the workouts there, the stuff I'm doing is very individual. So it's hard for me to be able to like say that you should do this or it's going to help you really working with a PT and a good PT is what you want to do. But, uh, I've been doing huge amount of stuff to improve my internal rotation and I see internal rotation of the femur. So if you think of your femur, uh, basically like, uh, just look at your femur and then twist it in place. Right. Mm-hmm. So the ba- if you were standing up, your foot would just be spinning around, right? That's the rotation we're talking about of your femur and, uh, cyclists are known for having terrible terrible internal rotation because we just don't do much. However, we also are guilty of thinking that we never need to worry about internal or external rotation because we, in our minds, say it's a single plane movement of just the leg moving up and down. However, that couldn't be further from the truth. Especially on a mountain bike. You still have, yeah. And you still have throughout the pedal stroke in a perfectly stable position on a trainer. You still have a huge amount of internal and or a a certain amount of internal and external rotation through that pedal stroke. Uh, or at the very least you have an impingement in your hip that isn't allowing that to happen, Mm -hmm. which in my case I do. So I've been working on that and improving, especially the internal rotation in my hip. And it's amazing to see how, with how much less focus I have to make sure, or I should say before to pedal and make sure that my knee was staying perfectly straight, took a great amount of focus Mm -hmm. and fatigue would then reduce my ability to be able to do that over time over, you know, four hour ride or something like that. Yeah. But now I haven't put in a long ride, but just on very short, easy stuff, it's, I can, it, I don't even have to put an effort and it's just tracking straight. Yeah. 
So, uh, yeah, just another testament to that. There you go. Uh, that's mine. Uh, Clint, do you have a tip you want to share? Yeah, a tip um, is actually one that will pertain to those who are going to race Motherload Epic. Okay, um, cool. Yeah. It has to do with um, racing and, and riding hard in the heat. Okay. Um, just, no, I'm not a nutritionist or, yeah, co- yeah. you know, anything like that. It's just from my experience, I've typically done very well in um, high altitude races. Yeah. I won a national championship out in Granby at 9,000 feet. Yep. Um, and I'm just a lowlander. So yeah, it's heat is very similar to altitude and what it does to your body. It wants to dilate everything. And so suddenly your body's trying to to process and digest things a lot faster than you're used to. Mm -hmm. People drink in hot and heat. People drink a lot of water. They just like cooling off and everything. They think that's what they need. Um, and they end up washing away electrolytes. Yep. And so then you have, food that's kind of ready to digest and be sent out, but then you don't have any electrolytes to get it there. And then as soon as you slow down enough, yeah. like you've changed your pedaling stroke or you stood up yeah. to coast down a, you know, a downhill or whatever. And then as soon as you start to pedal in that processed food is then at a time to get there to where it shouldn't be yeah. on the outside. Cause your blood's on the exterior yeah. trying to cool yourself. And now you cramp. Yeah. Yeah. So the thing to remember and the tip is your intake of more water is needed, but you also need to intake more food. Yeah, so absolutely. Keep eating with your keep drinking. Yeah, along the lines of of altitude and heat, a lot of it is you know you see similar benefits across the body from training in both conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't; it's not a replacement. However, you see similar benefits, and a lot of that comes down to increased plasma volume that you have when mm-hmm. you're training in the heat, and then that ends up basically allowing you to carry more oxygen through that blood when you get up to elevation. So, mm-hmm. it can be a perk. So all you SoCal guys, quit complaining <laughs> about high elevation races. You and one of the other, lot. just on piggyback, something. <laughs> I learned from the trainer road podcast the other night when I was working nights. Those guys that, are smart. Yeah, they are. I hear, I hear they're smart. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. I don't, I wouldn't know. Um, stem caps, <laughs> stem caps. Yeah. That's an issue. Yeah. Um, is that, you know, with the hydration part of it, it's not just water. Water isn't what creates the hydration. Right. You have to actually have the electrolytes there. So whether One. you put a pinch of salt in your water or you have electrolyte tabs or whatever, but you have to have that to help with the absorption and the hydration. We did a huge deep dive on that in the recent trainer road podcast. You can listen to that. We talked about, uh, just the one that was recorded this week, episode 167, we talked about ideal osmolality, yeah, and and how basically how you can find the what products contain ideal osmolality to b- allow your body to be able to be in a stable state to be able to best absorb because mm-hmm. that's the key that you're trying to get at. You know, mm-hmm. you're trying to put everything in there. So I was just trying to give you guys out. a simple plug. That was great, and I yeah. made it a complex one. Good. Yep. <laughs> yeah. uh, with that, thanks everybody for joining us. Remember, head over to uh, mtbpodcast.com, and if you need bike parts, go to the store and click on that Worldwide Cyclery banner. Uh, we'll take whatever we get from that, which is a small portion, and we'll put that into creating more content for all of you. Head over to Worldwide Cyclery for all that stuff. Uh, anything else, Steven? Uh, cliftonraces.com yes and uh, motherload epic for the the race in August yes go ride a bike go ride in a boat <laughs> go have some slushy margaritas local breweries Mraz Brewing Company bike dog brewery um, they're bringing beer to the finish and we got our pizza guy out there also so pizza dude we, we take care of it, you if you make it through isn't it it's the same pizza dude from TDS isn't it uh, had the brick oven on the trailer mm-hmm. He's got a brick oven on a trailer. I don't think he uh, was at TDS, media. but he comes out of Saxy X too. Okay, He's awesome. actually uh, the head chef, head chef for Safeway. Oh, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Pizza dude is pretty fancy. Just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks everybody. Uh, we'll talk to you all soon. Anything else, Steven? Have a nice day.
Hey guys, Jonathan here. Just wanted to thank you again for listening and let you know that if you like the song that you're hearing now and the one that you heard in the intro, it comes from Wave Riders Entertainment, my good friend Tommy Walter. Check it out if you're looking for more beats like this or some awesome tracks to listen to. We'll talk to you next week.